You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi there, and welcome to Radically Pragmatic, a PPI podcast. My name is Ronica Goodman, and I'm PPI's Director of Social Policy. For this week's episode, I sat down and talked with Stephanie Malia Kraus, who is an educator, social worker, researcher, and writer. Her work focuses on what young people need in the first quarter of life in order to thrive and be ready for adulthood. We discussed her recently released book, Making It, What Today's Kids Need for Tomorrow's World, and how her experiences have shaped her research and studies. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Veronica Goodman, Director of Social Policy at the Progressive Policy Institute. I first want to thank Stephanie Malia Kraus here with us today to discuss her recently released book, Making It, What Today's Kids Need for Tomorrow's World. Stephanie is an education and workforce development expert who has been working for years on policies at the intersection of school and work. Uh, So thank you, Stephanie, for making the time to discuss your book with me today. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Yes, thank you. Um, Making it goes beyond the question of what young people need to succeed in school to ask what they need to be ready for life. Uh, And in it, you explore the four currencies um, that today's kids need to make it in tomorrow's world, um, which you describe as competencies, connections, credentials, and cash. So just to get us started, um, could you please briefly introduce yourself, share a little bit about your background and experience working on these issues and your motivation for writing this book in particular? Yeah, I'll try, Veronica, for Mm -hmm. sure. And I think we were just talking before the recording began that we're both moms. And so the motivation behind this book sort of thickens and deepens the farther into motherhood I get because these kids, today's kids are also my kids. Um, and so this is a deeply personal topic for me. You know, it was always one I was passionate about. My background is in education um, and social work. So I sort of have an interesting education personal journey myself. I'm a GED recipient proudly. Um, and interestingly, the last year of school that I finished in the K-12 system was actually eighth grade. So I went to a little bit of ninth grade, a little bit of 10th grade, mostly chronically truant, and then have made a career out of having opinions on high school, even though I don't have like personal deep experience with it. Um, But as an educator, you know, this is pre-mom life. I saw how deeply affected my students were by the social and economic conditions of their life and what was happening in the community um, and the world around them. And I didn't have the training or tools to support them in that, to know where to send them, to know how to connect them, even to sort of make sense with them on what that impact was. Um, And so my journey sort of to get you and and your listeners familiar with who I am and and how I've worked is really um, kind of anchored around a single question, which is like, what 
actually do young people need to be ready? Not what do they need to succeed in the classroom or what do they need to get through school, but like understanding that they are whole humans who live in the context of all kinds of things, all, all different systems and settings. So I, um, while I got my start in the classroom, ended up leaving and going to social work school and really focusing on social and economic policy and social and economic development. Did work internationally and domestically, um, but ultimately stayed where I went to graduate school, which was St. Louis, to start a, a school and a nonprofit for youth who um, had really been pushed or pulled out of school because of those social and economic issues. They needed money, they needed jobs, they were taking care of somebody. And it was just pretty impossible to like stick and stay in school and also take care of all of the other things. And so that question followed me as a school leader and an education nonprofit leader where I saw that there was actually like a really big disconnect between going to school and completing high school and actually like what you need to succeed and what you need for the workplace and for adulthood. So I've spent the last now closing in on a decade working nationally for different nonprofits in what you mentioned, education, youth development, workforce development, and higher education, kind of living in those intersections, really still trying to answer that question. And so the book, Making It, was with now a mom's heart and this sort of seasoned professional of schoolhouse to White House, everything in between, you know, local to national work, thinking about what I've learned mostly in the last 10 years in the national space and conversations and convenings that we get to participate in when we work for national nonprofits or think tanks that I actually needed back in the classroom when I couldn't make sense of all of the things impacting my students' lives. Um, so I think about making it as my love letter back to the front lines. It's really written for anyone raising or working with kids. It's also written to be super helpful and useful for policymakers and other influencers. But the, the heart of it is, here's information you really need if you care about kids um, and you care about them being able to navigate and make it in a world that's not yet just, that's not yet there, that's super complicated, um, and, and the things that we have to bear in mind for that. Wonderful. And uh, I think one of the really uh, compelling things which I shared with you about the book is that you sort of talk about how the old system of um, school to work and what kids need is pretty outdated and, and is failing kids just in terms of the learning economy and, and what the skills are. So could you please explain um, sort of what's changed and how you think we should approach it? Yeah, so let's do like a very quick I'm not a history teacher, but here's how I understand the history of, of American schools. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners know this, but I'll, I'll tell you the parts that have really stuck with me along the way. Um, the first is that like public, so we're just gonna kind of generally think about public schooling in the US and you know your traditional sort of typical districts and in public schools within districts. Now we know you've got a bunch of outliers around there. You have charter schools, you have private and independent schools, homeschools, now you have unschooling. But the general like format of public schooling in America was really designed to take 
farm kids and train them for factory work. And so the first kind of layer of the model was how do we, you know, often in education, we talk about this as the industrial model. How do we take these kids, really accommodate, still have time to go help their family in the fields during harvest time um, and other like high farming moments in the year and train them for regiment predictable routine work. So that sort of created this foundation for how we move through school and how it's systematized and, and designed. But then this other thing happened on top of it that I don't think anybody realized would have such a profound impact. And that was um, Andrew Carnegie decided that he wanted to figure out a way to allocate faculty pension. So higher education and college and university, how do you dole out retirement dollars? And so he figured out algorithm for, you know, how you might divide it in a way that's really scalable. So how many courses would a professor need to teach and how many hours should those courses be? And how many courses could you cap in a particular year? And and so out of this desire to allocate pension, you start to see the formation of semesters and course load and credits. Well, the uptake was not what it needed to be. And so Carnegie went out and said, I'll give funding and incentives to any um, schools and universities across the country who pick up my model for pensions. And so what was designed for, um, adults to get retirement, time, the Carnegie unit, seat time, ended up becoming the mechanism on top of this industrial model for how everything in the public school is run, from the credits that kids get to how many hours and days a calendar might be, to how funding happens, and time really became proxy for quality. Mm -hmm. The time pieces of public school have nothing to do with the science of how kids are designed to learn and grow and develop, but it's easy. It's easy to dole out the funding. It's easy to cut up the calendar. It's easy to scale. It's easy to staff. And so time got baked in to all of these different pieces of policy and education infrastructure. So that's my history lesson. So here you have time baked in in ways we never could have imagined being this proxy for learning. And it doesn't actually match the science or research on what does it take to learn and what does it take to grow and to move forward in school. Oftentimes it bounds kids to learning that has to happen in a brick and mortar building, which the pandemic blew up, mm -hmm. um, rather than being able to learn in the workplace or in the community or at home. And, you know, we're pushing the boundaries here. So what needs to happen is this move from, you know, this very old, inequitable, designed mostly for white farm kids, farm to factory, to now thinking about factory to future. Um, and, you know, the last thing I'll say here um, before turning it back to you is that 
the the third part of this equation for schooling in the US, so you've got the sort of farm to factory piece, you have time as a proxy for quality, but the third part here is what we see as the social contract in the US. And I'd be super curious from a PPI perspective, like what you all think about or talk about from this, but this is the like mindset of the ladder of opportunity, um, you know, getting by and doing good in America that the way to succeed in the US is that you go through school, you graduate, you get a diploma, you go to a four year college, you get a degree, you know what you're going to be when you grow up, then you get a series of jobs and promotions or better jobs, better pay, save some money, save a lot of money, eventually retire and leave things better off for your kids. And that formula for success or that social contract never worked for everyone. But because of the rapid changes in the economy and socially and environmentally, now it doesn't work for anyone. And what you mentioned, the learning economy, we're actually entering into this place where people have to consistently and continuously learn to update and upgrade what they know and can do. Um, and they have to continuously purchase new learning and work opportunities well into adulthood. You can't just decide what you're going to be when you grow up and then it's done and you're like on the escalator. Um, so that's the third piece. And so what you have is um, what we see, deep inequity and a real need for like a intensive updating or upgrading of what the learning experience is, either by designing new or tinkering within or likely some combination. I'm glad, yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the the social contract piece of it um, and inequities. I think one of the issues we really focus on among groups that are getting left behind are non-college educated workers and sort of um, even, even folks that have gone to college and aren't really getting jobs that require a college degree or, or the training that they receive, um, because that, that's really a failing of the system that, um, you know, large majority of the, the labor force is getting sort of left out of good opportunities and good jobs. Um, and, and you share evidence in the, in the book that there are groups of students and kids that are getting left behind more than others. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, why this is happening, how it's happening and, and what we can do about it. Yeah. Um... I'd love to share it with you. And, you know, I'm looking at you in your office right now and knowing that like down the street and around the corner is my very favorite researcher in thinking about social mobility and opportunity, Richard Reeves out of the Brookings Institution. And Richard came up with a book, uh, came out with a book a couple of years ago about dream hoarding and opportunity hoarding in America. And I talk about it in the book and I actually think it's probably the best. It continues for me, um, both his work and then a friend, another friend and colleague in St. Louis who is at Washington University um, has, a, has a new role now at our area hospital, Jason Purnell, in thinking about how opportunity is distributed in America and, and who it is for. So when we talk about who is getting ahead and who's being left behind or really harmed or held back by the way things work in the US, um, I think there are a couple of levels that we have to look at. The for, and, and as you know, I talk about both of these in the book. The first is how do our kids in the US compare to kids in other countries? How are we looking these days? Um, 
and things aren't looking so hot. I mean, we are, you know, increasingly less competitive with young people who are in similarly affluent and opportunity rich economies and countries. Um, and some of that has a lot, actually, probably a lot of it has to do with the design of our education system and what training does or doesn't happen in terms of preparing for the workforce um, and how our kids are connected or not sort of thinking about that globalized economy. There's a, there's a grittiness and an integration, I think, that happens with young people from other places far more than for us. But in terms of the US, like you can't have this conversation without thinking about systemic racism and discrimination and who historically have had both the physical geographic red lines and the social red lines really drawn around them. Um, so the best way that I think about this is that young people who are really being held back and harmed by the system are those for whom the, the lines are drawn and they're kept away from the, um, the opportunities they need to experience economic well-being, to really have a decent and good life. And from a kid perspective, they're being raised by someone. And, and so the question is, you know, what is first happening in their household? Are they in a household with um, people who are taking care of them, who have good paying jobs and stability, who have access to the healthcare and the resources that they need, those pieces, um, or not? And then for them in their own learning and development, what kinds of educational and developmental opportunities are they surrounded by? So going back to Richard, you know, what I really appreciate about his work and research, and I'd recommend it to anybody, is thinking about we, especially as women, I think we know about the glass ceiling and not getting through, but he talks a lot about how that glass, what is a glass ceiling for some is a glass floor for others, and that there's a level of opportunity and advantage that is unreachable by design um, for, for so many folks. And that's everything from, again, the like legitimate policy red lines of where are you living to um, pretty arbitrary like district zoning for public schools also. And what school can you go to? And then what after school or out of school programs are built around there, or healthcare centers or other supports. Um, I think about this as kind of some communities are a little bit, We, in the last few years, people have gotten comfortable talking about food deserts. And I think about, we actually have opportunity deserts in, in America, in these different rural and urban tribal pockets. And then even on, you know, some of the outreaches of suburban communities as well. And then what Jason talks about, Jason Purnell, who's out of St. Louis, is just the difference, he, he, he actually looks at St. Louis specifically um, in actual life quality and life expectancy that if you live in one of these opportunity deserts and you don't have access to quality education, quality jobs, quality healthcare, quality transportation that could get you there, broadband access, these pieces, that your actual life expectancy goes down. And, you know, I'm sure you caught this in the book, but the thing that struck me the most as a mom and as a researcher is that advances in healthcare 
in science and technology mean that our children as a rule should be able to have a 100 year life, not like that one relative, you know, but like as a rule, every kid in the US should have a 100 year life. And yet we know that for kids who are living in these opportunity deserts, not only are there educational disparities, there are like, there are true profound life expectancy disparities and who gets a long life and who gets a livable life is a question of who they are and where they live um, and, and what's happening in their family. Sure. Um, and, and so I feel like we, we've gone a little bit into it, but um, I think the currencies, the four currencies that you describe are a really good framework for understanding um, some of these uh, skills and disparities. Um, so I'd love for you to just describe what they mean um, and what the four are. Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, it is, it's a great segue because these opportunity deserts lack the, um, you know, what is opportunity? Opportunities mm -hmm. are those experiences and environments that equip um, young people or their families with what they need to continue to, to grow and to thrive and to move forward or experience well-being. Those can be learning, work, wealth building, economic opportunities. So um, if we go all the way back to that question you asked about how school was designed and sort of how outdated it is in the social contract, then the next question is, okay, so if the social contract is like done, obsolete, what's in its place. And, and so what I talk about in the book is that as young people transition into adulthood, and this is happening now, they enter into a really confusing and chaotic, rapidly expanding opportunity marketplace. And there are all kinds of vendors there who are like, you know, what is the phrase like hawking their wares, like selling their things, um, learning opportunities, internship opportunities, apprenticeship, jobs. And so my question was, how do you pay? What is the currency you need to actually get what you need in this marketplace? And um, what the research shows very clearly is that there are four types of currencies that work in this opportunity marketplace. Some are potentially more valuable than others, and really kids need all four. And generally, our education and workforce systems only focus on two out of the four. So the currencies, I mentioned them at the beginning of our talk, are competencies. So what, what can you do? What are the skills that you have? Credentials, they still matter. Employers want to see them. They're going to get you interviewed more than if you don't have a credential. They're going to get you a higher pay more than if you don't have a credential. Some employers are now foregoing it, but they are the exception, not the rule. Um, so credentials uh, from diplomas to degrees to certificates and everything in between. Then connections, so social capital, which I argue in the book could actually be the most valuable of all mm -hmm. four currencies. So you've got um, what do you know, competencies, credentials, how do you show what you know, even if it's not a true measure of it, but like you've got the thing to show. Um, connections are who do you know and who knows you 
Um, and then cash, like hard up, straight, actual cash, because life is very, very expensive and it matters. And from an equity perspective, so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about your organization and, and thinking about being like a radical pragmatist. Like we spend a lot of time talking about education and skills. Get the, if you just get the degree, if you just get these employability skills, you'll be okay. You'll move out of poverty. You'll, you know, advance up the ladder. And I'm here to say that that is not true, that in the United States of America, the amount of opportunities that are based on knowing the right people, having the right social wealth and connections and networks, um, and having the cash to take a lower paid job or an unpaid internship or to go back to school or whatever else, like they are huge markers on how you get by. Um, and so back to like this love letter to the front lines, like if our job raising and working with kids or building policy that will support kids and families is to really do that in a sustainable way, then all of us need to care about all four of those currencies and what mechanisms are in place for um, young people who, especially those for whom they're like systemically held back from being able to build cash, you know, social and financial wealth, or having those experiences in or out of school to build the skills and to work toward the credentials. We've got to be attending to all four. So, so you've convinced me and I imagine uh, many listeners. Um, so I guess the, the next uh, sort of step is uh, what you see as some of the challenges to um, disrupting the system and, and making people really think about uh, children in this holistic way that, that need um, sort of all of these investments. Wouldn't it be great if there were no challenges and I was like, <laughs> no, we just need to go for Exactly, and exactly. Will be great. <laughs> okay, so let's imagine somebody is finding this video on YouTube and it's like 2023 and they're like, when was this even filmed? So we're filming this, you know, this is moving into the summer of 2021. We're like kind of shifting into pandemic recovery. It's not post-pandemic life. It's this weird, are we embracing normal? But we're in the in-between. And I think I think when we look at our schools and our workforce systems and our cities, there are a couple of things that really are sticking out in this moment. And then future will tell us what the actual impacts are. One is there is a huge desire for change and transformation. The, the number of national conversations in the past year and year and a half that were around reimagining, transforming, dismantling, redesigning um, are exceptional. They have absolutely purchased all of the real estate in the conversation market, right? <laughs> the amount of transformation that actually took place is not as big as the amount of conversation that happened about it because the system is designed in a way that's super resistant to change. And when I say the system, I actually mean systems plural the U.S. workforce development system, the U.S. education system, higher education, K-12. I mean, these are powerfully complex, robust, big systems. And so what I encourage people in the book and what I'll encourage people in this talk is that 
if we embrace a posture of being currency builders, so we're going to take on believing this is what kids need. And frankly, this is what adults need too. We're going to do what we can in the positions that we're in, policymaker, practitioner, parent, or other, to build these currencies into the experience that kids are having. And we're going to be thinking about it. Then actually, we have a dual call. The first part is how do we help the young people who are in our sphere of impact to build the currencies as they are engaging with the systems as they are currently operating? And how do we help kids to navigate those spaces? Um, you know, it's a little triage but it's reality. It's going to take incredible investment and effort to do the type of transformational work that so many colleagues are calling for. That's important, but that's generational work. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen in the near term. And then the other part is engaging in that generational work actually with the young people too. So what's the sort of short game of understanding that the system is slow to change and that you know the folks who believe in incrementalism aren't wrong um, and moving in that direction to say, okay, how do young people work and navigate within broken systems to still get ready and experience well-being? even as we are partnering with them and others in doing the infrastructure work, you know, where do we patch the roads of opportunity? Where do we build entirely new infrastructure and roads of opportunity? Uh, do we say like dead end, <laughs> do not go down this road? Um, and, and that's life, that's a lifetime call. Uh, that we're going to engage in and our children and our children's children are going to engage in. It's going to take time. Um, mm -hmm. And so that would be, that would, that would be what I would say. I think um, there are things that we do see that are bright lights in the work. I, I have the pleasure of working in philanthropy a lot and um, I'm really encouraged by the number of philanthropists who are now giving um, what's sort of being thought of as like trust-based philanthropy. We're going to trust the community and the local community to tell us what they need. And we're not going to restrict the dollars that we give them. We're going to let them do the work they know that they need. So I think, you know, we need infusions of capital investment and trust um, in the residents whose own lives and children are being impacted. We need time um, and we need that dual strategy. Mm -hmm. So, so talking about uh, infrastructure and uh, an investment, um, I would be remiss if I did not ask you about um, the Biden administration's American Jobs and Families Plans. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on those um, and, and how you think those sort of meet the moment and, and uh, this sort of transformational change that we're yeah. talking about. Okay, so there's so much in those plans, but I think we can like go like rapid speed and you can just, can just get some thoughts from me. Um, so 
you know, okay. So I'm, I'm looking up because I'm like trying to see these plans in my mind. So if we start with the American jobs act and thinking about investments in our infrastructure, making sure that people are getting the work and wages that they need. Um, and that we're attending to like what it means to be in a world where we are not supremely at the top. And also that there are big challenges that aren't other countries or economies like the climate challenge and what that could impact. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll say just as a general blanket statement, I'm super encouraged by both plans. I think that they're very comprehensive and that they situate us in the moment that we're in and attend to promises that have needed to be um, claimed and worked on for some time. Infrastructure being a key one, like, whew, are we really overdue for that? So sure. in the American Jobs Act, I mean, I think in terms of making it and the research of, of thinking about kids. So I'll say a couple of things. One of the things in the American Jobs Act is really the rapid expansion of broadband. And I think I, I actually do want to call on that because I believe that broadband needs to be seen as a utility and not the commodity um, and that it's lives, lives and learning are on the line that those families and households that did not have a broadband connection, not only was it a struggle for kids to be able to connect in and learn, but there were a number of things we were doing in my household um, that made health and safety possible for us. Um, and we're a household that has complicated health issues. We were able to do telehealth visits. I was able to work. My husband was able to work. Um, we were able to order our groceries and anything that needed to be delivered. All of those pieces were completely unavailable for people who, you know, or even figuring out information about like, where do I get a vaccination? Where do I go for food? All of those pieces. So number one, in, in tomorrow's world, which is like today, yeah. <laughs> we have got to see broadband as a utility and not a commodity. We have to understand that if we care about kids, which is this conversation, also they are tomorrow's workforce, um, that the work and wages their parents and caretakers have have a profound impact on their ability to learn and grow and develop and, and thrive. Um, and so attending to workers um, and workers' compensation and benefits, paid leave, um, all of those are going to deeply impact the health and well-being and the learning and success of the kids in the house. Um, so that's American Jobs Act, you know, so much more there. I'll also just say like as a note that in education and workforce development, we like never talk about a changing climate. It's not something that we address. Right. And yet it's hugely like looming and impacting communities and migration and changes and what happens in these communities. So I would love to see that not only does the American Jobs Act and, and Families Act attend to a changing climate that actually helps build resiliency plans because the next disruption to education and workforce may not be a health pandemic. It could be a climate related disaster. And we don't really have worker recovery and student recovery strategies, even as we have like 
climate, you know, emergency preparedness plans in cities. We don't have it from a work and learning perspective. Mm -hmm. On the Families Act piece, um, and now I'll just talk super, super fast. I think that pre-college is a wonderful idea, super complicated in execution, and that it requires profoundly more in I feel like I've seen said profoundly so many times in this talk, but like profoundly more investment in our actual community colleges. They are historically hugely underfunded and they are running just on these shoestring budgets. And so if you're suddenly going to say, and every person gets free community college, it must be coupled. Um, and I'm saying this is like a global statement because I, I know I know folks in this administration, and I know that they actually really care and understand this, but like free is not free. Mm -hmm. And, and so you have to make sure we see this through things called promise programs, like some, you've got to make sure that um, people will actually take advantage of the opportunity that they know and trust it. They know it's available, what it means, what it requires. And then you have to make sure that the places that they're going to where even though it may be free from tuition, they're foregoing wages and right. other things is gonna have the payoff that it requires at the end. It, it's got that market value as well. And mm -hmm. so I wanna see sort of deep focus and investment in community colleges. I'm encouraged that Jill Biden is the first lady, that she's a community college professor, right? She understands this intimately, but I do think this P20, early childhood all the way through some post-secondary education um, is really very important. And then I would be remiss if I didn't say that I'm a strong believer in direct cash assistance and was so glad to see that it took place in the recovery plan, um, continuing to give direct assistance in, in cash and food and services and support is a part of the Family Act. Um, because we need to believe in the dignity and worth of individuals and their ability to make their own choices and the need to just have flexible resources on hand and the, the impact that that makes. And so I'm excited to see that continue. Um, there are wonderful experiments and organization, the Economic Security Project supported um, pilots in Stockton, California with former Mayor Michael Tubbs and the Magnolia Mothers Trust in Mississippi, where we just see that direct cash works. Um, and the, the really, look, I'm going to use again, profound changes that that can have on the lives of kids um, and the opportunities they have. So, you know, policy is complicated and there are always unintended consequences because we think of these things and then the actual delivery of it. But from a platform and priority perspective, I'm actually really happy been put out and the only thing missing is a real focus on actual like youth and adolescence. Um, and so it would be amazing to watch the administration sort of roll out um, a national or federal youth agenda as well, because, you know, our kids have experienced this in their own way and their wiring and opportunities and the landscape has been really permanently reshaped from the last two years, um, not just the pandemic, the economic crisis, the racial uprisings, other things. And, um, and we could really use a youth agenda that looks at, you know, the sort of fullness of who they are, what they need right now, and what they're going to need in the future. 
Sure. So, so on that note, this has been really interesting. And, and so thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your book and your research with me today. Um, I hope folks take the time to uh, get the book, making it and read it. Um, I definitely enjoyed it. And uh, the book will be linked to the recording for this conversation. So thank you so much, Stephanie. Thanks, Veronica. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.